In our, lesson, our message last week, we discussed briefly the power of paying attention. And uh, I, I, I don't know how to get you to pay attention to a conversation about paying attention, but that is what we will need to discuss today. Last week, we observed that we can't possibly take in everything in the world around us. In order to pay attention to anything, we actually have to ignore almost everything. Most of us do this quite subconsciously. We learn to do it as very young children, so we don't think about it when we do it. But it is a very difficult discipline to master, and all of us, whether we remember it or not, have struggled to learn it. In truth, what's called often attention deficit disorder is a poor name for what's affecting children who can't pay attention in a classroom setting. They're not affected with a deficit of attention so much as they are afflicted with a deficit of ignoring. Most children who struggle with this are too attentive to their environments. They see too much of what's going on, and they cannot ignore it. This is in part why hyper-stimulating, immersive activities like video games or television are easier for such children to pay attention to. There's so much stimulation in those activities that the discipline of ignoring other things is much, much easier. You might find if you even struggle with this as an adult that distracting yourself with mindless activities can sometimes help you pay attention to what you want to pay attention to. Paying attention is as much a discipline of ignoring as it is the discipline of focusing on a given subject. For those of you who've begun to lose some of your hearing, you're learning this too. Hearing aids are great, right? They can amplify sound, but what they're not so good at is allowing us to select the sounds we would like to hear. For many who use them, the fact that all the sounds come in at the same level can be overwhelming. Obviously, the technology is getting better and smarter, but so far, nothing can substitute fully for the properly functioning mechanisms of human hearing. The fact actually, I don't know if you've wondered at the marvel of it, that anybody can listen to one person talking in a loud restaurant is a miracle beyond description. How does your brain tune out all the other conversations and all the other audible stimuli to focus on just one voice in that cacophony of sound? Well, like anything else, you learn to do it. And some learn to do it quicker and more proficiently than others. And that process is largely invisible to us. Have you ever asked yourself, why did I notice what I noticed? Why in a sea of conversation did I hear that sentence? Have you ever asked yourself that? Every moment of every day, we are selecting what to pay attention to and what to ignore. And most of that, as I said at the beginning, is done completely subconsciously. We're not even aware it's happening. And if we allow that process to just go as it goes naturally, you will become a slave to it. Why does that matter? Well, let me see if I can explain. Life has a way of teaching you and me what things should never be ignored and what things can safely be ignored. 
And most of our selection process as to what we pay attention to is driven instinctively by that self-preservation. So for instance, if you, have, if you have never learned that sermons are life and death situations, you probably have a hard time listening to them. For me, for instance, I cannot ignore the buzzing of a bee. I cannot do it. It seems impossible for me to tune it out. One buzz of a bee, you might as well have a blow horn and blow it into my ear for all I can concentrate when a bee is buzzing. I once worked in a church office that had a wasp nest in the ceiling. And every now and again, a wasp would make it into the room and that would get everybody's attention. But most of the time, the only sign of the existence of the wasps was the buzzing. And I could not work in that room. Like everybody else I was with, we were in cubicles. There were like four of us. Nobody else seemed to be bothered. But I was going out of my mind. Why did that happen to me? Well, I can only guess. But I think it's because as a child, I was once caught in a swarm of yellow jackets in the garage in my house. My brother thought it would be funny to throw a rock at a nest while I was in there. And it filled the place. And the buzzing was just over, and I remember being so terrified. I stood completely motionless, just surrounded. And if you've ever messed with yellow jackets, you know that's a perilous situation. And miraculously, I was only stung once. And my brother who threw the rock, who was not in the garage, was stung like six times. So there was some justice in it. <laughs> but in the end, I made, out, I made it out with that one sting. But ever since, I have been hypersensitive to the buzzing of bees and wasps. And I know the difference. I am a connoisseur of buzzing. I can ignore the buzzing of a fly, a beetle, a dragonfly, a ladybug. They don't bother me at all. I know the difference immediately, but I know the hum of a bee. And if I hear it, I can't hear anything else. My hearing system has learned that the buzzing of a bee or a wasp cannot be safely ignored. Cannot be. That's, at least that's how I'm hardwired. It's dangerous. And we all have alarm sounds like that. Any loud sound will get your attention like that because your loud means close, loud means dangerous, and you will hear it, right? You can't do anything else. But all of us have unique sounds too that get our attention that might not get other people's attention. And that's because your system of paying attention has learned that that sound should not be ignored. It comes probably from your experience. Paying attention is a natural process of self-preservation. That's what it is. We're trying to protect ourselves. Experience tells us what we can safely ignore, and experience tells us what we have to pay attention to. And after those lessons have been learned, and they're always being updated, you can learn this again, but after they're learned, our system of paying attention is largely subconscious. It just kind of runs itself. And because most of those lessons have been learned at the foot of selfishness, our natural instincts for paying attention are naturally self-interested. We can become confused or annoyed or even angered if someone even suggests to us that we should pay attention to something that we do not consider important enough to pay attention to. Just this week, my son and I were driving back from an eye doctor's appointment. And we were in a, you remember this, Gabe, right? We're in a line of traffic. And I was leaving, as I often do, a few car lengths space between me and the car in front of me. And suddenly this truck on our right came flying up, 
pulled over in front of us and slammed on his brakes. So we had to slam on our brakes to keep from hitting him, right? And then he screamed something out the window, which I, maybe Gabe heard it. I don't know what he said, but I saw what he did. He made an obscene gesture at me. And I thought, what? why did that happen? What did we do? <laughs> well, that gentleman, he needed to make a left turn. He was in the wrong lane for that turn, and there was a line of traffic in his way. Now, normally, he wouldn't notice who was to his right or to his left. He wouldn't need to notice it. But because he had to make a left turn, he noticed us. And I wish we hadn't been noticed. Because he didn't want us to be there when he looked in that direction. We were all in his way. And so he wasn't so much as angry with me, I hadn't done anything, as he was angry with the group I represented. I was the line. If he had not had to turn left, he would have ignored us. But he had to pay attention to us, and it did not make him happy. He didn't so much as scream at me, as he just screamed at the injustice of it all. And he made an obscene gesture to all of us who were in his way. <laughs> Paying attention is an annoyance when you don't want to see what you see. And it can happen in church, too, if somebody makes you look at something you don't want to see. You'll find you have a very hard time paying attention to it. I've had some people say to me, I was confused. And I thought, you weren't confused. You were offended. I know it feels the same, but it's different. Why begin this way? Well, all of those unseen forces we've been talking about, what we pay attention to, what we don't, lies behind the confusion of Eli the priest in our passage today. As high priest of Israel, his instincts for paying attention at the tabernacle should have been at least marginally informed by the covenant of Sinai. He was the one person in Israel who was supposed to be expert in it. The best indication as to who we are and as to who Eli was, what he understood, how his experience had shaped him, is seen in what he paid attention to and how he interpreted what he saw. That will be a window for us into Eli. It will also be a window for you into you. Eli, therefore, is a window into the religious life of Israel at the time. If we can notice what he notices. The text of 1 Samuel tells us, this is 1 Samuel chapter 1, verse 12. Now it came about as she, Hannah, continued praying before the Lord that Eli was watching her mouth. He was watching her mouth. Why was he watching her mouth? Of all the things a priest has to be concerned with at the tabernacle, why was he watching the mouth of this woman? Well, the text continues. As for Hannah, she was speaking in her heart. Only her lips were quivering, but her voice was not heard. So what stood out to Eli is a young woman whose lips were moving, but she was not speaking. He noticed this. Why did he notice this? Why was this activity like the buzzing of bees for me? Why did that stand out? There had to have been hundreds of people at the tabernacle. There had to have been all kinds of things going on. Animals bleeding, sacrifices being made, people coming and going. It's a busy place. Why did he notice this? Well, I'm guessing he had seen this behavior before. Perhaps like the buzzing of bees for me, Eli's experience had taught him that when you see somebody at the temple mouthing words and not saying anything, that person cannot be safely ignored. What did Eli think he was seeing? Well, the text tells us, so Eli thought that she was drunk. 
And then Eli said to her, How long will you behave like a drunk? Get rid of your wine. Now, I don't know how many of you have had the blessing of experiencing the disturbance an inebriated person can make at a quiet festivity. But I'm guessing Eli knew exactly why he paid attention to her. He had seen this behavior before. Apparently, Eli had witnessed at the tabernacle more than once drunk people doing this, and he knew he couldn't ignore them probably because of what happened next. As one in charge of the tabernacle, he was well aware of the problems drunkenness could cause, and public intoxication continues to be a problem for law enforcement today, doesn't it? And for you, if you have a party. What does this tell us about the religious life of Israel at the time? Well, pay attention to this. Apparently, drunkenness was more common at the tabernacle than fervent prayer. Eli appears not to have considered Hannah as even possibly praying. Now, it's possible that maybe prayers were prayed silently in these days. We don't know. Or maybe prayers were always spoken audibly. Or maybe Eli didn't expect women to pray. We don't really know what the culture was. But even so, when a high priest sees a distressed woman at a place of worship, speaking without words, one would think he might inquire as to what was wrong. But he didn't. He already knew. He simply assumed she was drunk. This is why he noticed her in the first place. And this is the thing about prejudice. It's about thing of judging quickly. We only notice things because we already think we need to notice them. Which means before you notice what you notice, you already know what you think you're noticing. Eli didn't have to ask a question. If he thought she was praying, he would not have noticed her. Because he thought she was drunk, that's why she stood out to him. And so he already had judged her. Noticing her was judging her. And more than that, Eli seems to have expected to see drunkenness at the tabernacle. Can you believe it? But he did not expect to see someone desperately praying to God. Again, what does that tell us about the religious life of Israel at this time? So Hannah tried to explain to the high priest what prayer looks like. Isn't this a great scene? No, 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 this isn't drunkenness. As though Eli didn't know what prayer was. But Hannah answered him and said, No, my Lord, I'm a woman despairing in spirit. I've drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I've poured out my soul before the Lord. Do not consider your bondservant a useless woman, for I've spoken until now out of my great concern and provocation. Now, there's an irony here in Hannah's response that we'll discuss in future weeks, and it's revealed by comparing her to Eli's own sons. But to discuss that here would be a bit off track. What's most interesting to me at this point is the strange observation that Hannah had to explain to the high priest of Israel what it looks like for someone to pray desperately to God. It would seem that in Eli's experience, this kind of praying was uncommon. I would guess that even Eli himself had never prayed to God in this way. If he had, then he should have been more inquisitive and slower to make the assumptions that he did. Apparently, Hannah was pouring out her heart to God in a way that Eli had rarely, if ever, witnessed. 
So she educated the high priest as to what desperation before God looks like. To Eli, the high priest of Israel, sincere and desperate prayer looked like drunkenness. That's what it looked like to him. It reminds me of the events of Pentecost in the book of Acts when the Holy Spirit enabled Jesus' disciples to speak in languages they had never learned. Some in that crowd too thought what? That they were drunk. We interpret based on our experience. I didn't know drunk people spoke in tongues, but apparently for them they did. Something similar happened routinely to Jesus as well when people would witness him doing something and come to radically different interpretations as to what they just saw. On more than one occasion, for instance, in the Gospels, in response to Jesus' miraculous casting out of demons, some of the leaders in crowds accused Jesus himself of being demon-possessed. You remember some of those stories. People witnessed the disciples speaking in languages they should not have known, but they could not understand what was happening. Many people saw Jesus cast out demons, but they didn't understand what he was doing or how he was able to do it. And Elah saw Hannah praying, but he did not understand what he was seeing. To borrow the language of the prophet Isaiah, why do we so often see without seeing and hear without hearing? Well, the reason is actually not as mysterious as you might think, and we've been talking about it this whole time. There's a very simple reason why we cannot understand what we see all the time. It's actually a natural process. You and I notice instinctively only what experience tells us we should not ignore. We then proceed to see what we're conditioned to see. That is, we interpret what we see based on the reason we noticed it in the first place. We then respond to what we see in self-protective ways. That's the natural course of things. And when left to proceed naturally, our perceptions almost always follow this course. If you don't think about it, you'll be a slave to it. So in the case of Jesus, when he cast out a demon, healing an apparently mentally ill person with a word, that proved very difficult to ignore. Mostly because the demon-possessed person already had everybody's attention. He was not somebody in their environment that they could safely ignore. That guy's crazy! Everybody sees the crazy person. Why? Because the crazy person's a danger. So everybody notices them. So they already were looking at him. And when Jesus cast the demon out and the man came to peace, they noticed that something had changed. So they had, Jesus had their attention. But then they had to decide now what to make of Jesus. And in each case of the casting out of a demon... Either Jesus or the demon itself, you know these stories in the Gospel of Mark, made comments that indicated that Jesus was acting on behalf of God. That too got everybody's attention. But what would it mean to agree with him, to conclude that Jesus really was acting on behalf of God? What would that mean for the average person? What would mean that they would have to pay attention to the other things Jesus was saying? And they might have liked that miracle, but believe me, most of what he said to them they did not care for. He was often calling them to change in ways that would have been extremely difficult, often even upsetting to their lives, and in some cases even dangerous to their security. So it was easier for them to conclude that Jesus was casting out demons because he was a friend of demons than it was to conclude that all he said and did could not be safely ignored. So to protect themselves from the demands Jesus would make on them, the people had to find a way to dismiss him. People do the same thing with Christianity, right? 
discredit Christianity, you don't have to pay attention to what it says. And if you did have to pay attention to what it says, imagine what it would do to your life. It's better to conclude it's crazy. It's better to conclude Jesus is demon-possessed. It's better to conclude Hannah is drunk. This was most likely an instinct for self-preservation, and therefore, it probably didn't happen deliberately. It probably just happened. Something similar was happening with Eli. He noticed behavior that his experience told him he should not ignore. He recognized this behavior as intoxication, and so he responded by protecting the tabernacle. What's wrong with you? Get out of here. Stop getting drunk. We don't need your kind here. Right? That's how he responded. He warned her to sober up, and then he sent her away. However, Hannah, like Jesus, was misunderstood, and she refused to go away quietly. She spoke up, and she explained the truth of her behavior. And it was an explanation that exposed the truth of the religious life of Israel at the time. And Eli did not want to have that conversation any more than the man driving next to us wanted to see a line of people when he needed to make a left turn. Eli did not want to see somebody praying in a way that he had never seen before, that he himself had never even done. She was exposing something he did not want to see. So Eli told her whatever he needed to say to her to get rid of her. Self-protection. This is what he said. Then Eli answered and said, Go in peace. May the God of Israel grant your request that you've asked of him. And he might as well have said, "And Get out of here. Now, did Eli mean that sincerely? I doubt it, especially as we continue in the story, given the way he responds to her later. Eli did not want to allow the moment with Hannah to expose anything for him or to change anything about the way he operated. So he simply gave her an answer he thought would get rid of her. And it worked. Hannah, too, heard what she wanted to hear. And she thought Eli was granting her request and she went away happy. I mean, it's all a bunch of subconscious stuff. But if we're tempted to believe that God heard Hannah's prayer because of what Eli said, we should be careful. As we discussed last week, Hannah appealed to God's mercy and compassion. And if God were to answer, it would be out of God's mercy and compassion. He didn't need Eli's permission to answer her prayer. Nowhere in the covenant of Sinai did it say that a priest needed to bless a person's prayer request in order for God to hear it. It seems to me Eli just said whatever it would take to get rid of her. But as we'll see in coming weeks, God heard her prayer anyway. So what might we pay attention to in this story? I just have a few suggestions. Maybe you'll see other things because you are different people. First, we must be aware of our subconscious tendency to pay attention only to what experience tells us cannot be safely ignored. And these are not always negative things. Sometimes we notice things that would be a benefit to us to acknowledge. Family, friends, loved ones, beauty. Uh, I remember when we were cooking the chickens, people came up and said, I can smell that from my house. And the smell led them to the chickens because they wanted to eat them. That's selfish, but still motivated not by fear, but by salivary glands, you know. But because of this, Instinct. Our initial interpretation of what we see or experience will likely be dictated by why we noticed it in the first place. And if you want to get somebody angry, surprise their expectations. Have you ever done the game where you blindfold somebody and tell them that you're giving them milk and they drink orange juice? Oh, you've never seen rage like that. 
This tendency selfishly to, un- to see things and selfishly to interpret them manifests itself in many ways. Racism and prejudice are obvious fruits of this instinct, right? But there are many others that are harder to recognize. For instance, just as Eli mistook fervent prayer for drunkenness, I might interpret a compliment as an insult or a look for a leer or a whisper for gossip, right? I can be sure that if something got my attention, it got my attention because something in my experience told me that that was a threat or a blessing to me. That's why I noticed it. So, of course, that's what I'm going to think about it. It's a perilous thing to let this system run its natural course uncritically since it's built essentially on fear and selfishness. Instead, we should begin by interrogating our initial interpretations of the things we notice and maybe do some self-work. Ask yourself, I'll ask myself, why did I notice that? Because it will tell you more about you than what the other person was doing. A small amount of self-awareness and humility goes a long way in this respect. This, in part, is why Jesus warned us not to judge. But instead, before we correct someone else, be sure we evaluate our own behavior and motives first. It's not that Jesus was teaching us never to disagree with, never to correct, or never to rebuke another person. If he was teaching that, then Jesus is a hypocrite, because he did all of those things. And he taught his disciples to do the same. In Matthew 18 and 19, he showed them how to confront people that were living in sin. So obviously he did expect that to happen. But Jesus was warning us about jumping to conclusions uncritically and without the awareness of our own sins in the process. Now, like I said, we don't notice only threats. We notice things that experience tells us are worth noticing, and some of those are positive, like family, friends, food, and whatnot. But it's still self-centered. And the self-centered nature of what we notice can be worked against in several ways. You can work against it. You can train yourself to see more than you would naturally see, but it's effort. Even though we can't help our first instinct, we can proceed to ask questions before acting. We can try to put ourselves in the position of another person. In Eli's case, he might have simply asked Hannah what was wrong. If she had been drunk, that would have been apparent almost immediately, right? But since she was only praying, the question would have avoided an unnecessary judgment, and maybe Eli would have been more responsive to her answer had he not attacked her and then had to defend himself when he proved to be wrong. The old cliche strikes me as quite wise. Don't rush to judgment. Assume that the fact that you noticed what you noticed is because you are biased. You've already been prejudiced, so wait before you act. Another thing to observe might be harder to see. And this might make some of us see something we don't want to see, because I've been presenting Hannah as the hero here, but she's not entirely heroic. Hannah, too, seems to have been operating selfishly, self-centeredly. Her desperation was so visceral and her suffering so poignant for her that she seems to have been completely unappreciative of the effect her behavior might have on others around her. Pain and suffering often do this to us. Hear me in this church. There is no greater self-justification for selfishness than suffering. And I think Hannah's awareness of this is actually present in the story. Once Eli makes her aware of how her behavior looked, she turns tail quickly, doesn't she? When Eli accused her of being drunk, she said the following to him. Don't consider your bondservant a useless woman. 
For I've spoken until now out of my great concern and provocation. And maybe that sounds very light, but this is quite a phrase. I love this phrase. She asked Eli not to consider her a daughter of Belial. Have you ever heard the word Belial? If we go back a long way in English since that's being used. Belial is a Hebrew word, but it means like to be worthless, useless, a waste of space, right? I, I can think of all kinds of things my teacher said to me that would have been similar to Belial. But she says, don't consider me a worthless woman, a hindrance to society, a burden on my family, a crazy person from which people have to turn their heads because they make no benefit, they only take and they never give. Don't think of me as that. She's desperate not to be misunderstood, right? It's suddenly making it apparent to her, wow, in my desperation, I look like something I'm not. (laughs) Hannah allowed something that Eli didn't. Eli did not allow Hannah's rebuke to expose anything in him. But Hannah allowed Eli's rebuke to expose something in her. We too might learn not to get so lost in our grief or so lost in our suffering that we forget the needs and the concerns of others. In this we might learn from the example of Jesus alongside of Hannah. The greatest moment of distress for Jesus that we witness in the Gospels appears to have been his final night of prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane prior to his arrest. And according to the Gospel of Mark, on that night Jesus said to his disciples, and he said to them, my soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch. He might as well have said, and pay attention. The disciples had about an easy, as easy a time following that instruction as you do, staying awake in church, right? Or <laughs> at a really boring lecture. Some have been tempted, though, before we get to that, to read Jesus' request here somewhat selfishly. What was Jesus asking them? Some have suggested that Jesus was asking his disciples to keep watch over him in his grief and to pray for him. But when Jesus later finds them asleep, his true motives were revealed. He said this, He came and found them sleeping and said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not keep watch for one hour? Now, if Jesus was just human, he'd probably say, I needed you and you abandoned me. How can you fall asleep when I'm so upset? That's what he might have said, but that's not what Jesus said because he was Jesus. Keep watching and praying so that you will not come into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Jesus did not ask his disciples to pay attention for him, but for themselves. Jesus' concern, even in his own moment of deepest grief, was for his disciples not to be led into temptation because of what was going to happen to him. This, of course, does not imply that grief is wrong or that it's wrong to be mournful in our suffering. I mean, Jesus did confess to them, my soul is deeply grieved to the point of death, And he isolated himself and went to pray. Grief is not wrong. But it does imply that suffering or grief does not exempt us from loving our neighbors as ourselves. As we observed last week, in our grief, we must not sin. Finally, it's important to recognize that our knee-jerk reactions to the things we notice in our lives, those things tell us more about us than about the people and the things we encounter. Rather than interpreting our instincts as revealing truths about the world, that's what people do, right? I've been told by so many Christians they have the discernment of spirits. If there are gifts of the spirit in the way that we've talked about them, it seems like the most common one 
in people's own estimation is the discernment of spirits. This is a way for someone to say they can trust their instincts, they come from God. That's what I hear. But rather than thinking your instincts reveal truths about the world, which may be true but is most likely not true, we might consider that our instinctive responses are more often revealing truths about our own experiences in the world and what we've learned from them. And again, a bit of self-awareness and humility can go a long way in this respect. After all, your experience and mine, they're not exhaustive. We've not experienced everything there is to experience. And therefore, our instincts are not necessarily accurate. Our instinctive responses are usually authentic to our experience. They're true for you, certainly. But they're also limited by those experiences. They may only be true for you. It's important to do the work of seeing things from another person's perspective. And this is hard work, but it is part of what it means to follow Jesus. Why do I say that? Well, who did God become like in Jesus? You and me. He became flesh in the person of Jesus. God came all the way to understand your experience. The least you and I could do in following him is to try to understand somebody else's, right? To do this well, it takes patience. The patience to get to know another person by asking questions before we jump to conclusions, by risking ourselves, by engaging in conversations we may not want to have, simply because those conversations will help us to better understand the perspective of the person we're trying to love. It also requires deliberate observation. We have to choose to see. As we've been discussing, we all notice some things instinctively based on the ways our experience has marked dangerous and pleasurable things for us. But we can also force ourselves to notice what we would not have otherwise noticed. Scientists do this when they put something under a microscope. Botanists do it when they devote years to studying one single plant species. Zoologists do it when they commit years and years of their life to understanding the behavior of one type of animal. And you and I can practice it too if we discipline ourselves occasionally to slow down and notice more than is natural for us. So part of my discipline this morning, because I wrote the sermon, which means I heard it first, was to read the beginning of the hymnal. And that's where I found those words from John Wesley. That happened this morning. I figured I should probably pay attention to what this thing thinks it is. The discipline of paying attention to things and to people who do not affect us in any way. That is, to those people or things who are not threats or benefits to us. Can help us to begin to break the self-centered way of seeing the world that's so easy for us. So you might want to notice the things you don't notice. The person that does not stand out might be exactly the one you should spend a moment observing. And it might help. As we follow Jesus' example and the teachings of the scriptures. May we truly learn what it means to love our neighbors as ourselves. In both our judgments, and in our grief, and in what we notice about them. Love has to influence everything. May that be so. Amen.